1: Welcome to the 97th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast, where Mark McEvely and I, Matt Jessup, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. As you can tell very quickly here, Mark is unable to record the podcast this week. So we have Aaron Kramer as our guest host this week. Aaron is our wealth advisor, a part of the uh, Jessup Wealth Management family, and I'm very happy to have him with me this week. Welcome, Aaron. I'm excited to be here. I'm happy to have you. This is going to be a good one. <laughs> it's going to be a great one. we got some good content. Absolutely. So uh, as always, before we start, let's take a few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year to date for all the major indices that we track, Aaron, for the listeners. These numbers are going to be as of the market close um, on uh, May 11th, and uh, this data is from StockCharts.com. The uh, S&P 500 index uh, for the month, down about 2.84%. For the year, up 8.8. The Dow Jones Industrial Average for the month, down 0.85. For the year, up 9.74. For the NASDAQ Composite, down 6.67% for the month and up 1.11% for the year, barely keeping its head above water there. Barely. Yeah, barely. Uh, the IWM uh, ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Small Cap Index for the month, uh, down 5.79% and Aaron for the year up 8.26 still. The Vanguard International ETF X United States for the month down about 2.38% for the year up 8.17. And then let's give an update on uh, on treasury bond yields. So Aaron on the 3 month the T-bill sits at 0.015, barely positive. Barely. The uh, 2 year treasury sits at 0.167. And the 10-year, pretty relatively unchanged since the last podcast, it sits at 1.69%. Okay? Very good. So before we dig in, I'm going to discuss uh, big news headlines and current events for the week. Uh, I'll dig right in. We'll start first with April employment data. So the BLS employment data for April was a major disappointment, Aaron. It was major. 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 The, uh, the data released last Friday showed the economy adding 226,000 jobs, again for April, versus economist expectations of 1 million new jobs, um, and with prior month's figures being revised down as well. The unemployment rate expected to fall, Aaron, to 5.8%, instead rose to 6.1. Very interesting. Why do you think that is? Just curious on your opinion. I think it's the uh, participation rate I read. The labor force. So you're having people, in essence, retire, leave the labor force, and it's affecting these numbers. I agree. Yeah. Um, Expectations were lofty as the economy continues to reopen as more people become vaccinated and restrictions are eased. The weak data was attributed to enhanced unemployment benefits, making it harder to lure workers back As job openings remain very, very high. Uh, The current number of jobs is approximately 8.5 million lower, Aaron, than pre COVID. Wow. Pre February 2020 levels, to be specific. Last month, 18% of all employed persons teleworked because of the pandemic. Interesting. Now, that data, again, came from the government. Right. Um, The Bureau of Labor and Statistics, BLS, how in the heck do you think they got 18% of employed
2: people are still teleworking? How do they know that? I, I think it has to be from polls, but I don't know how accurate that can be. I know. Oh, it's interesting. We
1: know if Mark were here, we know how <laughs> yeah. Mark feels about polls.
2: I, I, he does not like polls. He doesn't.
1: If you want to poke the bear, <laughs> reference a poll. Pole. Yeah, yeah. Remember that for the future. I will. Okay. Uh, but labor shortages were widespread around the country. This is the second item I want to share from current events and news headlines. So again, labor shortages widespread around the country. Check this out, Aaron. I know you heard this. Montana, South Carolina announced that they are ending their participation in the expanded and raised unemployment benefits that are effect through the end of June now. Wow. The American Rescue Plan makes the aid available through September 6th. The programs in place since March of last year pay funds to the long-term unemployed, Offering a weekly $300 supplement to the benefits, the governors behind those two states, Aaron, they blame the unemployment programs for keeping workers home and causing the labor shortages. I tend to agree. because I would I think, agree.
2: I, w- I think people aren't incentivized to to go out and find find work when you can get an extra $300 bucks a week. Some uh, in some instances, they're making more than they would normally. Absolutely, I've heard yeah, of those I examples. I have as well. So I yeah. think once that $300. $300 a week goes away. I think we'll see a more accurate representation of the unemployment rate. I would agree with
1: opinion. that. Do you think more states, Aaron, might come on board after Montana and
2: South Carolina? I think they will, um, especially as the uh, the vaccines continue to roll out. I think they have the cover to do that because it's, let's say, in quotes, safer for people to do that um, and get back to work, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so I think I think states might follow other ones. I mean, everywhere you go, what's the sign you see before you walk in the door? Need now people, hiring. Now yep. hiring. They'll put the wages right on there, too, and it's, it's they seem relatively high. And in my there's opinion. bonuses at places. E- exactly. There's sign-on bonuses, all that kinds of stuff. Absolutely. So.
1: Um, two more major headlines for for listeners, Aaron. Next is Treasury Secretary and former Federal Reserve, uh, Reserve Chair Lady Janet Yellen acknowledged in an interview released last Tuesday that interest rates may need to rise somewhat to prevent the economy from overheating if and when the administration does additional spending, if that becomes a reality. Multiple Fed speakers were heard from over the past week, and most were consistent in their message, though, that Federal Reserve policy should stay accommodative, though, for some time. It's too early to talk about tapering asset purchases, and inflation pressures are likely to be temporary. Any comments there?
2: No. Huh. It's interesting. I think that kind of points to a lot of these these commodities being at such high prices. Um, and I think inflation is going to be a big, big topic over the summer. Whether the the Fed decides to, to raise rates over the summer, I think, is anyone's guess. But sure. um, I think it's going to be a hot topic right now. I um, would
1: agree. I think there's going to be a lot a lot of hypersensitivity to any sort of data that's inflation related. Right. Yeah, a good way of saying it. And the last uh, item uh, for news and headlines is more and more Americans are investing in the stock market. So I got some numbers behind it, Aaron. According to Bespoke Investment Research on May 10th, quote, back in 2014, roughly 40% of survey takers who said they were invested in the market said they follow the market on a regular basis. This reading has steadily increased over the last seven years and hit a record high this month of
2: 75.8%. That's interesting. That's a that's huge bump. Who would have guessed that? I don't know. I don't know. That's a huge stat. I wonder what the underlying reason is. Do you think it's
1: news coverage, media coverage? I think a or? lot of people have said people have invested a lot of their stimulus checks into the market. Yeah. You, know, you have a lot of these. It, it's um, an easier path to open up an account these days than right. it has been in the past. Right. That's true. Right? That's true. Uh, last part is the percentage of uh, consumers that say that they're investors has spiked significantly as well. Um, rising above fifty percent this month for the first time since the early days of the survey, going back to late twenty fourteen. So again, more eyes on the
2: market. Um, I think it's a good thing, not a bad thing. I agree. I agree. I think it's good that the retail investors sort of, even if they're if they're not doing it well, at least they're thinking about it and, and taking control of their personal exactly, finances. Exactly. Right. Um, yeah, it's great. I, I wanted
1: to share that, and I, I thought the listeners would would like to hear that. So uh, let's transition. We're going to go over tweets, articles, and research that caught our eye over the past week. I know on all of our uh, social media sites, um, Jenna on our team posted all the show notes. Yes. So uh, for those of you that uh, do not follow us on social media, if you visit our website at www.jessupwealthmanagement.com, you will see the links to all of our social media sites, uh, things like Facebook and, and Twitter and LinkedIn, etc. And you can get the links uh,
2: to these show notes. So, if it's okay, Aaron, I'm gonna let you start. Yeah, we'll jump right into tweets, articles, and research that caught our eye over the past week. Um, so, the first thing I saw was a um, a little research article put out by Bespoke Investment Group, um, and it's it's a it's a chart on elective surgeries. Um, and elective surgeries are typically procedures like plastic surgery or LASIK, things that are you would pay out of pocket for that insurance might not necessarily cover. Got it. Um, so when times are tight, elective surgeries tend to get put off. Um, and, and when consumers are, have cash on hand or are flush with cash, that's when, when consumers tend to have these surgeries because they can afford to do so. It's elective, it's a luxury, etc. Exactly. Um, so this, this survey below shows um, a massive, massive spike in uh, cosmetic and plastic surgeries. Um, and this chart goes back to November of 2014 and all the way up through November of 2020. Um and cosmetic surgery surgeries bumped to almost 10% or a little over ten percent wow. actually, which is just huge. Huge. Um maybe I'm speculating, but I think it's a lot of, of of um the stimulus flowing through the economy. And I think it's a lot of the uh the backlog of demand over the pandemic where people couldn't get these surgeries done uh because surgeons weren't offering them or they didn't feel comfortable taking that risk and going out and, and getting it done. Um, what's your, what's your sort of opinion on this? I'm glad you kind of brought this topic up, uh, overall because
1: underlying, it says one thing to me, the underlying strength of the American consumer is strong because he or she would not go out and do these procedures if they didn't feel financially stable to do so. Right. So that first and foremost underpins the strength of the consumer. You know, the other area is, I can't name the specific company, right. but there is a stock that is currently in our internal model that kind of would that benefits directly benefit from, from this. elective surgery. Exactly. And so there are ways, listeners, that you can kind of play off some of this data. But I think the bigger theme is it tells me the underlying consumer is strong right now. Yeah, yeah. And, I, a, and, I, and I'm glad you brought indicator. that up because yeah. people aren't going to go out and spend five grand on a plastic surgery if they're if not they com- if they it. don't feel financially comfortable exactly whether they're exactly. paying cash or they're financing it they're still not going to do it either they're way. still not going to do it unless they're comfortable that bodes well for consumer spending i agree I agree. okay that's I agree. just my two cents
2: yeah yeah and it, it overlays the chart with cosmetic orthopedic visits and lasik so it's kind of kind of interesting that, that is interesting um well again well, listeners you can you can find
1: this on our social media sites if you want to see this exact chart that aaron is referencing
2: Perfect. Back to you. Um, I got another one for you. It is a travel uh, update, again, from Bespoke Investment Group. Um, And it's uh, across all major online travel booking sites. Um, It shows that new highs for booking flights and booking hotels were reached in April. Um, So kind of Expedia is leading the uh, the group here on this chart. So it shows, um, again, from April of 2015 all the way up through April of 2021, it kind of shows that travel was kind of pretty consistent bouncing back and forth um, throughout those years. And then it has a huge dip over the pandemic. And then again, it spikes huge, even beyond uh, pre COVID levels. So I think that's a really, really good sign for the consumer. Um, And I think it's a good sign for airlines and hotels that we can hopefully start getting back to normal um, from from their sort of revenue streams as well. Yeah, Um I mean, Says by the chart here, it shows Expedia, Trivago, Priceline, Kayak,
1: and Orbitz mm-hmm. um, are the sites that it has the raw data from going back to April of 2015. It's great. I think it's a it's a really good sign for the consumer, in my opinion. I would agree. I mean, again, people aren't going to spend on travel. Uh, I've been saying now for months that if anybody anticipated making a trip over the summer or the fall, book it now, (laughs) get ahead of it. These prices are only going to get more expensive. You know, these airlines, Aaron, they can't turn on a
2: dime and put people and planes back in service. Yeah. Especially with the, uh, the 737 still being out. So I think there's going to be a lot of, a lot of pent up demand and a a lot of small amount of supply for these flights. The one thing I did hear, my brother's
1: a pilot uh, for Southwest, and this is public knowledge. He said that uh, the 737s that have been affected haven't been like across the board. Mm -hmm. It's a subsection of the 737 MAX that still has a wiring issue. Got it. But he kind of uh, made the insinuation to me that was more of a minority type of thing rather than like all MAXs. But, you know, the big point, and a lot of people in the aviation industry know this. When an airline wants to put back planes into service- It's not immediate. It is not immediate at all. And so you now have capacity constraints, and what happens with the supply and demand metric, prices are going to go up. Exactly. There's only so many seats that they can fill. So um, I'm glad you brought this up because, again, going back to the elective surgery update, are there names that people can own that could potentially profit from this? Of course. Absolutely. But there's also, I look at it again- as you said, the underlying strength of the American mm-hmm. consumer says, in my opinion, they're coming back and they're spending. Exactly.
2: That's great.
1: Yeah. Um, I got one. Great. I'll go next. So um, I have an update on inflation estimates. Now, before I begin, inflation is a hot topic right now, Aaron. Yes. Right. I mean, you and I had several conference calls today with clients. And what was a topic that came up every time? Inflation. Inflation. <laughs> right. People are seeing it in lumber. Copper, metals, energy, food. They're just seeing about it? every commodity a- there is. Exactly. So this piece of research was from Compound Advisors Research on uh, May 7th. Um, they said there's one definition of inflation that seems most applicable to today. Quote, too much money chasing too few goods. I
2: think that's that's a perfect
1: description. And you had the bottleneck issues from last year of supply disruptions of, from COVID where, you know, let's just say... Uh, factories were shut down, you know, mining operations were shut down. And now that things are reopening, everybody wants it yesterday. And the consumers flush with cash. And they're paying up for it, right? So we are seeing the impact of trillions of dollars in stimulus, money that's chasing a limited supply of goods almost everywhere we look. Now, Aaron, I've seen posts of two-hour lines at luxury retailers, such as Louis Vuitton and Gucci at a Texas mall. Could you imagine Wanting that product so bad
2: that you would wait two hours just to buy it? Personally, no. But I, I think it's a great sign for the consumer, again, that people are, are wanting these goods and they're willing to wait for them. And, and these are not cheap goods by, by any no. means. <laughs> no. And they've drastically got more expensive.
1: I exactly. mean, I remember I got my wife uh, a Louis Vuitton purse. The last one I got her, this is probably over five years ago. And it was expensive. hmm if you looked at the prices now, more than doubled, more than doubled in five years, it's and crazy. people are paying this. It's Insane. All right. I have other examples for listeners, Aaron. Ready? I'm ready. U.S. housing prices are booming. We've talked about it a little bit before on the podcast. They're at record highs nationally, and they're showing the highest rate of increases at plus 11% year over year. Okay. That's the highest rate since 2006. Wow. Okay. Wow. I got more. The used car market is the perfect example of too much money chasing too few goods. You ready? Prices of used cars have exploded to the upside, increasing 26% this past year. That's huge. That's it's massive. Huge. massive. So I'm going to give you some real insight here. Um, I recently went on a, a trip with some friends, and um, I met a new couple on this trip. And um, the gentleman in this couple owns a used car dealership in town. And one of his problems is getting inventory. Wow. And he's like, listen, I have to be very specific at what I sell cars at Mm -hmm. because it's easy to sell a car now. But here's my problem. I have a problem replacing the inventory. Wow. And so, you know, he's in a position to where, you know, if those prices turn and he's got a bunch of inventory on his lot that he's paid excessive prices on, Mm -hmm. you know, it's almost like a game of chicken. Right. You know, when are those prices going to drop? And, you know, a lot of you used cars lots are in these situations. But the demand, he says, is through the is roof. Through the roof. Wow. Through the roof. Uh, one more area. You ready for this? This one's crazy. Collectibles. All right. A mint Michael Jordan rookie card that sold for under 15000 in the year 2015 hit a value of 50000 in April of 2020. Ninety thousand in May of 2020, and over two hundred thousand dollars in December of 2020. Earlier this year, that same card was sold for more than seven hundred thousand oh dollars. You're seeing, and this all this data is from Compound Advisors from May seventh, Aaron. And if you're telling me that there's not uh, some potential overheating in some of these speculative collectible areas. You're crazy. You're crazy. <laughs> okay. So let's make this relatable for listeners. The current five year inflation rate estimates, they currently sit at plus 2.68% annually for the next five years. I have a chart from Compound Advisors going back to January of 09. This is the highest forward looking rate of inflation we've seen in over a decade. Hmm. And why is this important? I want to make this comment first. I want to get your response. Yeah. Here's the silent killer for people that have excess amounts of cash on the sidelines. Loss of purchasing power.
2: Exactly. Your comment. I mean, it, it, that's a great point. Um, if, you're, if you're sitting in cash and you're essentially really, you're not earning anything right now, and then the price of goods are, are raising... Two point six eight percent annually, you can't keep up with that 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 rate of inflation, and, and essentially, uh, you're losing money on the value of your your portfolio or your cash, and you can't you can't afford the same level of goods you could let's say five years from now. That's right, and so you know people might not see it in their bank statement. Their bank statement
1: might not go down, right? But in five years, that hundred thousand dollars might only really be worth ninety thousand. Exactly, right. Exactly. And so I want to kind of call it the silent killer that people really aren't paying attention to. And that 2.68, some people look at that and say, well, that's completely false. Because when I go to the store now, that carton of milk, instead of being four bucks, is now five. The carton of eggs is a dollar higher. Gasoline's higher. And if I'm the Federal Reserve, this is my opinion. They have to look at inflation being a tax on the poor. Exactly. Because wealthier individuals they can afford the dollar more of milk and, and so the, there's people in america that they this can't. is really yeah. affecting right and this is something i think the fed needs to be hypersensitive to uh, because it is affecting part of the american population and that part of the fed's mandate is to keep
2: inflation it's under at control percent yeah something to throw out there That's yeah, a good that's a great point
1: Anything else you want to say regarding that?
2: No, no, I think you covered it well.
1: Before you go, I got one more. I'm ready. You okay with that? I'm ready. All right. (laughs) I got an update on sell in May and go away. So um, in uh, in highlighting Mark, um, last week, Mark brought up the old Wall Street adage or saying, quote, sell in May and go away. So let's do a reminder, Aaron, of what this means for listeners. So this theory is that stocks don't perform well. Between May and October during a calendar year as they do the other months. So investors who believe in this strategy sell their holdings and park the proceeds in cash for six months to avoid downturns. Then they buy back in November and they remain invested through April when the markets have historically tended to do better. So it's simple in theory, Aaron, but it is neither sound nor profitable. According to Advisors Capital, over the past decade, this maneuver only worked out once (laughs) in 2011. But those who continued to follow the sell in May strategy missed out on some positive, better than cash returns in each of those other nine years. Now, I have a chart here that I'm about to verbally reference. And again, this is on our show notes. It's on all of our social media sites. Jenna put it up there for everybody. And it shows the average returns of the uh, S&P 500 index um, over those uh, years, including the one that was negative of 2011. The average from the May to the uh, October was 4.9% during those months. So it kind of torpedoes the whole sell in May. Exactly. And go away. We would just miss out on almost 5% each year each year and so isn't it amazing all of a sudden you start putting some data behind this stuff and And it kind of just blows up the narrative yeah (laughs) and again um not to sound old but when i got started in the industry there were people that thought of this strategy and were almost biblical about it wow yeah i just don't know obviously the data is telling me it's not applicable anymore
2: no, and, and and even in theory, it's it's timing when to get out and when to get in, and then you're you're missing you're out of the market for six months every year. That's right. It's going to be feast or famine,
1: and obviously you've seen famine by doing uh, yes, it. Yes, yes. Um, I'll send it back to you before the
2: financial planning topic of the week. Yeah, this this last one's an interesting stat. It's um it comes from BBC News, and it's on birth rates in the U.S. Um, and according to the CDC, the American birth rate fell for the sixth consecutive year in 2020, um, with the lowest number of babies being born since 1979, um, according Jeez. to a new report. That's that's a the long lowest time. number of babies born since 79. It, it's interesting. Um, it goes on to say that some three point six million babies were born in the U.S. in 2020, making a four percent decline from the year before. Um, the slump was seen across all recorded ethnicities and origins, uh, according to the findings. So huh. it's it's pretty crazy. It's yeah, affecting wasn't like, everyone. Didn't it didn't affect equally. just one like ethnic group or anything like that. It's, it's, it's very interesting. I think a lot of it has to do with just U.S. culture now, and, and people are waiting longer and longer to have kids, in my opinion. Um, I think you're seeing also um, the millennial group, in my opinion, is
1: a lot more methodical. They're planning things out. Um, they're not just hey,
2: it sounds good to have a baby today. I mean, I just I'm not seeing that no, type of yeah, laissez faire yeah. attitude about exactly. It. I agree. Um, it goes on to say in 2020, the general fertility rate in the US was about 56 births per 1000 women, uh, the lowest rate on record, and about half of what it was in the early 1960s. Wow. Um, so it, that really doesn't sound like a lot to me. Um, the, the report also analyzed the total U.S. fertility rate, which estimates how many babies a hypothetical group of 1,000 women would have over their lifetime um, based on actual birth rates. Um, and for a generation to exactly replace itself, the number has to be at or above um, 2.1. And where is it now, you think? Um, it looks like it's sitting right at 1.7. Um, so we're, we're not even we're being not able to close. replace... We're not keeping up. Exactly. So it, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, and experts say the, the con- country's tumbling birth rate is closely linked to the average age of American mothers. Um, so kind of what we were thinking. Um, women are, are becoming mothers later in life, a phenomenon tied to increases in educational attainment. Growing labor force participation and delays in marriage. So I think I could, that kind believe, believe all that. I believe all that goes with the millennial narrative that that women are participating in the workforce yes. more. They're they're getting educated more, and all that stuff is just sort of delaying having children, um, which I guess is a good and bad thing. And there's a um, lot of
1: methodical planning. Exactly.
2: Um, so according to um, the according to Pew Research Center, the average age of mothers at first birth is 27 um, this year up from 23 and 2010. So that's, that's a, a big, that's jump. a big change. That's a big jump in a decade. It's very, very interesting.
1: Well, you know, when I, when you say this, here's where my head goes longer term, this is going to be a headwind for companies profitability because they're going to have less people to sell goods and services to.
2: That's exactly
1: right. right. So h- how is this relatable? And so one of two things have to happen. Either Americans need to start having more babies <laughs> to keep up with uh, population growth, mm-hmm. or we need to have a different immigration policy.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it, it all kind of plays into our, our consumption economy as well, because if there's less people consuming, how do these companies afford to, to keep up with their same business models?
1: Well said. I mean, two thirds of our economy is consumer com- cons- uh, consumption based. And if you have a um, population that's decreasing, that could be a headwind for profitability of these companies that Absolutely. provide the good and service. Absolutely. So, again, either um, – I guess what I'm trying to say also is I don't see millennials right now
2: changing, changing this narrative anytime no. soon. And I'm, I don't know about the the next generation. Was it, Gen Gen Z? Is that what that is? I think so. Gen, I could what, be wrong. Do you
1: know what the next one is? I think
2: so. Gen, Gen Z? Z.
1: <laughs> okay. All so, right. So, I mean, I don't know what their attitude is towards it. I don't either. But um, either that, or we're going to have to have a different immigration policy, exactly, because we can't have a. Di- you know, this reminds me of Japan. Exactly, they've had demographic challenges like this, and look, it's
2: made their economy stagnant. It has, and, and I'm curious what the average workforce age is going to be down the line, because I, I wonder if it's going to have people working longer or or not. That's, That's a good gonna, point as well. It's a good point as well. I mean, you know, with um, uh, with
1: individuals waiting longer to have children. I think that's also making them have less. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, Rachel and I joke, if uh, we would have had our uh, number three baby first, we probably wouldn't have three. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave it at that. I think listeners will understand where I'm coming from. I love her to death. I love her to death. But if she were our first, we wouldn't have had another two. It worked out for a reason. We may have had one more. We may have had one more. Of course, God gave us Rowan first, so of course we had more. <laughs> But I'm digressing. All right. So let's transition, Aaron, to the financial planning topic of the week. Um, This week, I picked an interesting topic, okay? I selected a blog post from NerdWallet, and the title of the article is, quote, Ordering the Combo Life Insurance with Long-Term Care Benefits. This is an interesting one. I thought this would be a good one because we are starting to hear more questions from our clients about how they're going to tackle long-term care cost in their retirement. Right. Okay. So I'm going to highlight some different areas of this article and you just pipe in whenever you want to add something. We'll do sound fair. Sounds great. All right, let's dig in. So article, um, was written again and posted to nerd wallet. And the first part is, quote, the biggest risk of buying long-term care insurance is that you might spend tens of thousands of dollars on something you don't use. Policies pay for nursing homes, assisted living, or home health care. But what if you never need these services? New types of policies combine long-term care insurance with permanent life insurance, such as whole life or universal life. Okay. Um, I'll continue. How these combination policies work. Combination long-term care life insurance policies pay for long-term care that regular health care or Medicare will not cover. And if you don't max out the long-term care benefits, the insurer pays the remaining benefit to your beneficiary upon your death. This is also called linked or asset-based policies. Okay. Mm-hmm. Anything you want to add so yeah, far? I,
2: I, it's, it's very interesting. And it's, it seems like a good, um, a good way to protect assets from, from long-term care and also kind of a nice generational planning strategy as well. If for some reason you don't go into long-term care, all those premiums that you paid... Um, and their hefty premiums for, for long-term oh, yeah. care oh, yeah. um, wouldn't necessarily be, be for waste. And there would be some investment gain, and I'm assuming, is how these policies would be structured as well. Sure. I mean, I guess in, you, you put it
1: perfectly. And I guess to summarize it, what comes to mind when you were talking is this. It turns it into if insurance to when insurance. Right. Right? Right. So if insurance is like our car insurance today, mm-hmm. our home insurance, if something happens. Right. You use it if you need it. If you need it. And what you're kind of insinuating is it turns it to when. It's not a matter of if you're going to get money out of it. just a matter of when. Exactly. I think that's a good way of throwing it out there. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about how these policies work. And this is all a part of this blog post from NerdWallet. First, the policy provides a pot of money for long-term care that's equal to several times your premium payments. Okay. Um, Take um, old... Another idea is you can take old cash value in an old policy... And you could upgrade it to one that kind of has this combo mm-hmm. long-term care feature. I've seen people do that. Yeah. Okay. So no matter which one, the policy death benefit will be reduced, which means less money for your beneficiary, according to how much of the long-term care benefit you use. Some policies guarantee a small percentage of the full death benefit, such as ten percent, even if you use all the money allocated for long-term care. Hmm. So in that example. Let's say you have $100,000 pool of money you can use for long-term care. You go into a facility, you're older, you use it all. In this example, your beneficiaries would still be left with $10,000 right. of a death benefit. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, next, you'll need to supply medical records and take a medical exam to qualify for some of these types of policies. Others, though, offer simplified underwriting, which means you only need to answer health questions over the phone. If you're healthy, you'll pay less for coverage if you buy a policy that requires both an exam and a submission of medical records, okay? Mm -hmm. So next thing, sales of these combination long-term care life insurance policies have taken off. More than 260,000 combo policies were sold in 2017 up from 15,000
2: of these back in 2007. Wow. Yeah, I, I think that kind of directly plays in with the the rising cost of health care, because nursing homes are health care. And if it continues to rise at six, seven percent annually, there's I think there's going to be a lot more need for these long term care policies. I absolutely agree. I mean, look at the cost, the inflation rate of this stuff. Right. And maybe a, an interesting thought is how can these insurance companies continue to to cover these long term care costs when health costs are rising at at this rate. Do you think they just bake that into the price? Or that is a great question,
1: Aaron. What I'm seeing more and more is they're not providing compound benefits. Mm. So let's say it offers, let's say you get a policy and it offers to pay hundred dollars a day. Mm-hmm. In the past, that hundred dollars would normally compound at five percent a year. Now what I'm seeing is 5% simple interest, Mm. things like that. Or now it's only 3% simple interest. Right. So what I'm seeing is the kicker on the inflation rate will not keep up with the actual cost of the good or service. Interesting. Something to throw out there. Yeah, that's a great point. So a couple more things from the blog post. The appeal of combination policies. Aside from the fact that you get something for your premium no matter what, The biggest advantages are as follows, this blog post says. One, the policy could be a good investment if you otherwise would have spent the money or kept it in a low-yielding account. Do you agree or disagree
2: with that? I agree with that because I'm assuming it's going to have some sort of um, investment and generate some sort of return. On the cash? Yes, exactly. I will agree with you on this one.
1: Um, Next one I want to get your feeling on. You won't have premium hikes when you pay with a lump sum. And a policy with a limited number of payments might even guarantee the premiums will stay the same. Some owners of traditional long-term care insurance policies have seen their premiums double within the past several years. Here you go. You alluded to this. As care costs have surpassed insurance companies' projections. And with historically low interest rates, insurers haven't made enough investment income off the premiums to pay claims. So they're baking it into the price. They're baking it into the price more. I would agree. Another one. There's a money-back guarantee with some of these combo policies. The insurance company will return your premium if you decide you don't want the policy after a certain period of time. This blog post says, Aaron, such as five years. Before then, you can get a percentage... Um, of the of the policy also at different times, so there's that out there as well. Now I want to get your take on these downsides that they wrote. Yes. Okay, it says a combination policy of of LTC, which is, stands for long term care, and life insurance is probably not for you if number one, you only need life insurance. In that case, you should just buy regular term or permanent life insurance term life is designed to cover the years that your family depends upon your income is sufficient for most people. Permanent life insurance covers you uh, for your whole life. Um, any comments? Do you agree or disagree? I, I, I agree wholeheartedly with that, kind okay. that. statement. next point, you don't want permanent life insurance. If you only need temporary shot for a term life policy, which is much cheaper. Yes. Agree or disagree? Totally agree. All right, one more. You don't have $75,000 or more burning a hole in your pocket. The American Association of Long-Term Care Insurance, there's an association for that, Aaron, uh, says that the combination policies are best for people who have, quote, lazy money, end quote, sitting in CDs
2: and money market accounts. Your opinion? I I definitely agree with that because for a lot of people, they don't have $75,000, $100,000 to just dump in to an LTC policy nope. when they should probably if they if they are focusing on saving it should most likely be for retirement or or other things in my opinion. I'm with you. I am with you. So
1: last part of this blog post, get advice before you decide. It says if you do decide on a combo policy, compare quotes from multiple insurers and check the insurance company's financial strength ratings before you buy. It only takes a few moments to look them up on websites of independent rating firms such as AM Best, Fitch Ratings, Moody's Investor Service, or Standard and Poor's Rating Services. Okay. Great. Last statement is this: combo policies, combination policies, are complex products and their cost and benefits
2: vary. Yeah, I think it's going to come down to the individual person for sure on whether this makes sense for you or not.
1: I would agree. Yeah. And so my editorial slant with my opinion is this. If you're listening and you have uh, a legacy policy, an old life insurance policy you bought back in the day, and it has a bunch of cash value in it, this is something where if you're concerned about long-term care, Might you be should good definitely, yeah, you definitely should consider this. Um, now us as a firm, this is something we can shop around. I don't want to turn it into a commercial, <laughs> but it is something that, you know, we right. can do. Um, it's not a core of, uh, of our business. Our core part of our business is asset management and financial planning, but this is something we can do, but I want to at least introduce the topic and then whatever trusted advisor you have in your life listeners, reach out to him or her, have Absolutely. the conversation. Yeah. Good way of saying it. Yeah, for sure. Okay. That's great. So uh, before we sign off, Aaron, I'm going to give you the floor. Anything else come to mind about the markets or anything you want to bring up to listeners?
2: No, not really. Um,
1: anything you you were thinking of? Well, we're on the tail end of earning season. So, you know, earning season lasted from the middle of April to the middle of May. We're at the very tail end earnings in general we mentioned it on last week's podcast are just blew them out of the water stock market seems to not care about I all.
2: know yeah that's kind of been on my mind too what do you th- what do you think the reason for that is if you're speculating
1: so in my opinion i just think a lot of people have been buying these lower quality names they're speculating on the reopen trade anything that's cyclically sensitive to inflation and that's been the hot trade yeah and i think ultimately people are concerned about what the fed's going to be doing about interest rates are they going to do a surprise rate rise um, I think there's just a lot of uncertainty in regards to uh, what some of this legislation might get passed. Right, right. Um, what are companies going to do with all this cash that's on the sidelines? Um, so, you know, I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Anything else?
2: No, I think that That's great.
1: That's all I have. So thank you, listeners, for uh, being a part of the 97th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast. Um, Aaron, thank you for being a part of the podcast this week. It was great. I was happy to be on it today. I really enjoyed being with you today. So, uh, listeners, we hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week and uh, I will be returning next week with Mark McEvely, and we will be recording the 98th episode at that time. So take care, everyone. Thank
0: you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website that's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com there you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public.